Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Lawson Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down the Elysian Kingdom, this season's eighth episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. We'll conclude our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for the Elysian Kingdom. Okay. In his medical lab, Dr. Mbenga continues his research to find a cure for his daughter, Rukia's life-threatening disease. He is almost overcome by fumes emanating from a compound he has mixed when Una comes in to question why he has not yet cleared the crew from a landing party for duty. The first officer empathizes with his concern over the plight of his daughter, but reminds him that he must also be attentive to his duties as the ship's chief medical officer. She advises him to get some rest. On the bridge, the crew has completed its analysis of the Jonesian Nebula and prepares to set course on its next mission. Pike commands Ortegas to take them into warp, but when the lieutenant attempts to do so, the ship doesn't move. Thinking the Nebula may be interfering with their ability to go into warp, they attempt to use impulse power. The ship moves, but then halts suddenly causing Ortegas to be injured as she is hurled to the floor. Pike calls for Mbenga's assistance. An exhausted Mbenga goes to the bridge. When he arrives, he finds himself and the crew dressed in Renaissance-era attire of the royal class. The ship's decor has also been transformed to depict that time period. Mbenga realizes the crew have unknowingly taken up characters from the book he has been faithfully reading to Rukia called The Kingdom of Elysian. Although he had taken on the part of the story's protagonist, King Ridley, Mbenga knew he had to be careful of those who may betray him to win favor of the evil Queen Nev. Mbenga learns Chief Engineer Hemmer was the only other crew person who knew their true identities. As a telepath, Hemmer could sense there was a sentient being in the nebula that was non-corporeal and, ex and exuded a conscience. Mbenga realizes the nebula entity had created the alternate reality based on Rukia's imagination as informed by the book he had read to her. When he finds his daughter, she is dressed as a young princess and has no signs of disease. She happily tells him about her friend, the entity that lives in the nebula. The doctor tells her she must end the fantasy so the crew can be themselves again. Using his telepathic abilities, Hammer is able to communicate with the entity. Mbenga learns he must make a painful choice. If the Enterprise returns to normal and Rukia goes with him, there was little chance of her survival before a cure could be found. However, if she stays with the entity, 
Rukia's body would die, but her consciousness would survive with the entity who would be her companion. The doctor decides to allow Rukia to stay with the entity. And Benga's daughter is taken away. But a few moments later, she reappears as an, an adult since seconds are like years in her non-corporeal state. She tells him she is happy and safe. She also has enjoyed many adventures with the entity she calls Deborah, which was her mother's name. And Bega notes his now grown daughter looks like her mother. Rukia tells him she knows they will meet again but he must now live his own life and create his own adventures. The Enterprise returns to normal, but there are five hours that are unaccounted for. Una comes to Mbenga's office and finds him looking at the book that he would read to his daughter. Una asks him about Rukia, and he tells her she's alive, safe, and well. He also lets her know that he had been through something extraordinary. Una sits on the edge of his desk, realizing he knows what happened with the missing five hours. Mbenga tells her, it begins like all good stories, once upon a time. <laughs> wow, I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a bittersweet, but joyous, kind of episode you know it's half and half right when you think about it so let's talk about the credits the elysian kingdom was written by akila cooper and onitra johnson it was directed by amanda Rowe. cooper is the co-executive producer and writer for strange new worlds she co-wrote ghosts of valyria from earlier this season additionally cooper has written for netflix luke cage American Horror Story, and The 100. She has worked as a producer on shows, on those shows as well. Additionally, she has served as producer on Jupiter's Legacy and the upcoming Netflix series, The Magic Order. Onitra Johnson has been a writer's assistant on this season of Strange New Worlds. A veteran of the U.S. Air Force, she is also a 2019 graduate of Wesleyan University. Omnitris appears to be a first-time TV writer because the Elysian Kingdom is her only credit. So I would like to say congratulations on getting off to a good start. Oh, yeah. And I mean, if she graduated in 2019, she's relatively young. She, she is. She's yeah. in her 30s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She did six years in the Army. Oh. I mean, Air Force, rather. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, before she went to Westland. Okay. Westland, yeah. Yeah, okay. The whole thing was that she didn't have money. to. Her parents weren't wealthy enough to put her to college, so she served in the Air Force for six years to receive the funds, and she went to Wesleyan University on a veterans uh, scholars program. Well, good for her. Amanda Rowe is a Canadian TV director and producer. She is known for directing and producing The CW's Nancy Drew. She has also directed episodes of The 100, Doom Patrol, and Cloak and Dagger. It has been announced that Roe will return as the director for season two of Strange New Worlds. Now let's get into the analysis. 
This week we get an episode primarily focused on the story of Dr. Joseph Mbenga. This is the first of its kind in the 56-year history of the franchise. Played only twice by the late Booker Bradshaw on the original series, Babs Olusamokin has been able to flesh the character out, even introducing that he is a widower who is raising a young daughter named Rakia suffering from an incurable disease. Although that's the premise we have at the beginning of this episode, the Elysian Kingdom provides us with a brief recess from those that more serious story, and at the same time, provides us with a bittersweet resolution to it as well. All right. So the theme, the theme of the Elysian Kingdom is sacrifice, and both the fairy tale and the case of Rukia, King Ridley, or Dr. Mbenga, is forced to make a difficult decision. To get what is desired, one must give up something or someone they cherish so that they may live life more abundantly. The Elysian Kingdom is easily the most outlandish episode of this first season. It's a rare example of a lighthearted Star Trek story within a story. We are following the grand quest that parallels the adventures of the ship's crew. At this time, the quest is taken from the perspective of a child's fantasy tale. The role-playing episode enables the regular cast to stretch themselves by playing roles that are, in many cases, opposite to the roles they regularly play. Living out the events in the Kingdom of Elysian's children's storybook, we get to see Anson Mount's heroic cap Christopher Pike turned into the cowardly, self-serving Lord Chamberlain, Sir Routh. Christina Chong's super serious La'an becomes the flighty singing Princess Thalia, carrying around a purse dog dressed in a matching sparkling gown. But by far the greatest shift is Celia Rose Gooding, who takes her sweet and earnest cadet Uhura and transforms her into the deliciously evil Queen Nev. Adorned in elaborate costumes, everyone relishes in this opportunity to play dress up for a day. In fact, I just heard, I saw on, on Twitter that there is a cosplayer who's already creating a copy of Queen Nev's dress <laughs> that she can wear to the next con. Oh, that's so deep. I mean, and she even got the little hand the nails too, the little metal nails. Too. I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, the episode is a bittersweet tale of hard decisions made, perhaps giving us the most heartbreaking moment of the entire season. Through his personal log, Mbenga informs us that his research to find a cure for Rakia's sinochemia has been fruitless. The time spent has reduced her 11th month's life expectancy down to a mere few days. Time is running out for her. On top of that, the life she's been living isn't much of one. She's lonely materializing periodically to hear her father reread her favorite book before being beamed back into the medical transporter's pattern buffer doesn't offer her much joy. 
You could argue that the brief encounter she shared with the first servant two episodes ago was probably the last few moments of fun she experienced. The quality of life this little girl leads creates an additional tension her father must address. Can I talk to your friend? It doesn't really work that way. Perhaps I can be of some assistance. You said if you tried to connect to the consciousness again, it could kill you. I know, but maybe if Rukia told her friend we need to talk, the entity might be more inclined to cooperate. They'd like to talk to you if that's okay. If you would like, you may speak through me. Please be gentle. You must not take the child. We don't mean you any harm, but I need you to stop this fantasy. You're putting my crew in danger. You need to your crew are inconsequential. You must protect the child. You have an attachment to Rakia. We are alike. She was lonely. Like me. Lonely? How did you know? When I probed your ship, I felt her imprisoned in your machine. I sensed her loneliness. It matched my own. I created this world for her, to give her a piece of her childhood you didn't allow. I was trying to protect her. Everything I did was to keep my daughter alive. I was looking for a cure. But I'm all better now, Daddy. And I thank you for that. But whatever you are doing to create this fantasy, the crew cannot live like this. You have to let them go. If I leave, the child will die. My being near her cures her. If I release this ship and the child goes with you, she will grow sick again. The ship cannot stay here. Then you must make a choice. The crew or your daughter. You can't ask me to do that. I had fun out here. But I'll go back into the buffer if you want me to, Daddy. There must be another way. There is. You could leave and she could stay. How would she live? It is her body that is ill, but her consciousness could join with me. She would be free of sickness. She will never know death. Daddy? Daddy? You know how in the story, King Gridley has the lacry stone. He wants to keep it. It protects him, makes him happy. Until he learns that it has a soul and that it will die if he holds on to it.
Just as King Ridley was forced to choose between holding on to the Mercury Stone or saving Princess Talia, Dr. Mbenga must choose between getting the entity to return his crewmates to their lives or losing Rukia. Even though he agrees to his daughter's wishes and chooses to relinquish her to the entity within the nebula, the loss of her daily presence in his life is a heavy price for any loving father to pay. Now, I must confess, I was truly moved by the choice he had to make. In fact, as I told you, Gary, I definitely shared some tears. As a parent of two children, I could empathize with how difficult the choice would be. You want your children to be happy, but it would be difficult to find joy and not being able to be with them, at least for the foreseeable future. So true. Also, adding a note of pathos to the scene, we know Mbenga will be without the last member of his small family. This choice will have ramifications on who he becomes as the weight of that decision is fully experienced as the, as the season progresses and next season comes out. We don't think the resolution of Rakia's <clears throat> story arc was abrupt given the importance it was given during the season and how, we'll, and how it will play out into the second season. She was introduced as a child with an illness that gave those inflicted less than a year to live. By that time, some of, the, some of those months had already passed. Given that this season is supposed to cover roughly that amount of time, one can imagine that Mbenga was losing his race against the clock. Besides, stretching out impending doom, hanging over a child, would wear thin and begin to feel cruel, regardless of how cute she is. Needless to say, it had to be given an ending before the end of the season. However, Babs has hinted that Mbenga's sacrifice will be a factor in his actions during season two. Some have questioned whether this type of episode had earned a spot in, in this inaugural 10-episode season. Meaning, when you have so few opportunities to present stories with these characters, is this tale a justified expenditure of one of those few opportunities? Well, our answer is yes. <laughs> The Elysian Kingdom wasn't a simple bottle episode that gave the actors and the audience a brief reprieve from the regular grind. It was a beautiful, tender tale of a father's love. The season would have been weaker without it. Absolutely. I think that the beauty of this episode is that it's deceptively simple. Yes, yes. And because we get fooled by that the majority of it is played in a broad, more presentational level. Right. We aren't prepared for when we get hit by the 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 loss, the sense of bittersweet that yes. he has to let her go. Yes. 
And that really, that's where the, where the power of this episode comes in. I wholeheartedly agree. One last thing we want to talk about, about this episode that hasn't been discussed much um, in the last couple of days. And that's the entity in the Jomnesia Nebula itself. Named Deborah by Rakia, this lonely, non-corporeal being with amazing powers senses a kindred soul in this little girl. Reaching out to connect with her, the entity is able to cure her of her illness. But also, the entity generously provides a fantasy life for entertainment. But these gifts come with a very heavy price. This is similar to another entity we've seen before. In the original series episode, Metamorphosis, a non-corporeal being called the Companion has sustained a human named Zephyrin Cochran for 150 years on an isolated planet. Cochran is the original inventor of the warp drive on Earth. To experience life as a human, the companion sacrifices its godlike ability and merges with a dying woman. It saves her life but loses all its powers to do so. Cochran and his companion will no longer live as immortals, but they will be together. Again, this too is a bittersweet tale of love and sacrifice. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of commonality, a little strength in that, that we can see that. Um, So let's move on to bits and pieces. But this time, it's a bit and two pieces. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start off with that author sounds familiar. You may not have caught it on the book's cover, but The Elysian Kingdom is a children's book written by Benny Russell, Mm. the mid-20th century pulp science fiction author from Far Beyond the Stars on Deep Space Nine. Since that episode premiered, fans have questioned whether he was he was he a real writer in the context of Star Trek or just the alter ego of Benjamin Sisko. Right. Um, this episode presents evidence that he exists as a separate person from Cisco yes. in in canon. That's great. So hopefully this won't be the last time we see one of his works presented in another yeah, episode. Yeah, that'd be neat. And so I'm now going to talk about if I could read your mind, girl. <laughs> now Vulcans are telepathic just <clears throat> as the Anar are. Why was Himmer able to sense the presence of the entity in the Jonesian Nebula and block it, but not Spock? Was this a moment where the writers forgot that little bit of trivia, or they conveniently forgot it? They conveniently forgot it. Or Spock just wanted to be taken over and turned into a wizard. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? And the final bit piece that we have is a soul in the stone. One of the most tender moments in this episode is between Rakia and her father when they discuss the difficult decision facing them, leaving Rakia behind with the entity. He compares it to King Ridley's dilemma with the Mercury Stone, that the king wants to keep the stone, but in doing so, it might lead to its soul dying. Now, there's been much written and discussed about Roddenberry's opinion on religion and the existence of God. 
Outside of DS9, there has never been a fully throated embrace of a belief system in religion where it wasn't soon shown to be fake. Right. Chakotay's native religious practices were dropped by the end of Voyager's third season and never really discussed after that. So this may be the first time an individual soul is referenced in Star Trek. In Star Trek, the preferred term when it's been the more secular sounding reference to a spirit. Right. But I think that says something about the way Mbenga looks at this. He understands what he what presence is being left behind with the entity and that it is not since the body is going to disappear right he knows that it's it's the soul of his child that's that's remaining all right so now let's move on to talking about easter eggs all right okay so strange new world continues to make callbacks to various aspects of star trek canon with carefully placed easter eggs gary why don't you start us off so my Easter egg is role-playing that the cast and crew of Star Trek have a tendency to role-playing. Now, that's a pretty common trope in all the Star Trek series where they put a, take on parts that their regular characters aren't necessarily playing in the storyline. In mm-hmm. most cases, the use of these, these role-playing moments mm-hmm. is to teach a lesson to someone. So let's look at some of the examples that exist throughout throughout right. the canon of Star Trek. There's Spectre of the Gun from the original series, a telepathic race known as the Malkosians, forced Kirk, Spock, Bones, Scotty, and Chekhov to reenact the gunfight at OK Corral in Tombstone as the Clantons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's also Cupid, the where Q transformed Picard and his old flame Vosh and the senior officers of, of the Enterprise into versions of Robin Hood, Maid Marian, and his, his merry men. We also have full the fistful of Datas, also on Next Generation, where the computer malfunctions, traps Worf, his son Alexander, and Deanna Troy in an Old West holodeck program where they interact with characters who now resemble Data. Move along home, one of the worst episodes ever written. <laughs> um, during the first contact with the Wadi, a species from the Gamma Quadrant, they choose several members of the crew as pieces in a game of chance that's played with Quark at the bar. And we also have on Deep Space Nine, our man Bashir. A transporter accident physically transformed the station's senior staff into characters from Bashir's secret agent Hall of Sweet program. <laughs> um, on Voyager, we have Bride of Chaotica, uh, that where during an, expo- expo- an exploratory mission, the trans-dimensional photonic beings mistakenly become entangled with a scenario from Tom Paris's Captain Pro- Proton holodeck program. A lot of these are connected with the holodeck, <laughs> yes. which seems to be... The clue, maybe you shouldn't have a holodeck. <laughs> and I'm not even getting into the whole um, Professor Moriarty stuff that was oh, going no, on. No, yeah. no. And the final one I want to reference is Far Beyond the Stars, which I mentioned earlier. Engulfed in the vision of by the prophets, Cisco imagines himself as Benny Russell, a science fiction writer from the 50s, 
who fights racism when he writes a story about a Captain Benjamin Sisko, a black commander of a futuristic space station. Now, yeah. what's yours, Adele? Well, you know, I was just going to comment on uh, Far Beyond the Stars, too. Yeah. Uh, we've definitely mentioned that episode before mm-hmm. on our podcast. And we just want to truly encourage our listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, please do. It is a classic, classic Star Trek episode. Uh, it, it It is just powerful so well you know, and the other thing is i know there's a lot of fans of star trek for whom deep space nine is the red-headed stepchild the one that they have not given time and energy to and i quite honestly would try to encourage people to think differently about that all right for my easter egg i would like to talk about one more episode from the first season of the original series with similarities to this week's Strange New World episode. The TOS episode, Shore Leave, is one in which the Enterprise crew beams down to what is thought to be an uninhabited planet for a respite. Now, we know that in the Elysian Kingdom episode for Strange New Worlds, fantasy becomes reality through the mind of a child. But in shore leave, each crew member could trigger a memory that could manifest itself into reality. So when Yeoman Tanya Barrows imagines a fairy tale world, a costume appears for her reminiscent of an attire of a princess uh, during the European Renaissance period. Barrels gladly puts on the costume to take the place of her tattered uniform. Please don't ask why that happened. But later, a black knight appears and challenges Dr. McCoy, who is serving as yeoman's, as yeoman's companion on the planet. When the knight charges McCoy with the lance, the doctor stands his ground thinking the knight could not be real. However, the knight spears him in the chest and McCoy seemingly dies. By the episode's end, we learn McCoy was right, was all right after all. Nothing that occurs on the planet is permanent till the doctor turns up alive. We assume the same is true in the the, the Elysium Kingdom episode. So the crew members killed by the Huntress Arrows were able to come back to life. Their resurrection would allow the episodes to retain a mostly lighthearted ambiance. So so what did you think of Shore Leave, Gary? Shore Leave's a c- cute little episode. You know? Yeah, yeah. I do think it's kind of odd that Kirk wants to beat up a guy 20 years younger than he is, pretty much. And that's his idea of a good time. Right, right, right. I mean, Finnegan, his, the guy who... T- who well, he t- went to he went uh, Starfleet Acad- Academy right, with... And, and who tortured him. Right, right. I mean, that to me seems kind of juvenile, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> but that's his idea of vacation, I guess. So, so as far as seriousness, I'm definitely not putting this on the level uh, as uh, the DS9 episode we talked about. Nor should you put it on... 
level of Elysian Kingdom. No. <laughs> but it is a fun episode. Okay. If that's what you want to say it is. <laughs> I, 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 I think the funniest thing is the big white rabbit running around and that's about it. All right, well, let's move on. To yes, let's news. let's move on. Let's move on. All right, let's go on to some Star Trek news. And obviously, as usual, what's up first? Talking about the Ready, Ready Room. Room. Babs Olusomukin and Melissa Nevia joined host Will Wheaton in the Ready Room this week to discuss episode eight of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. They talked about acting in the fantasy world aboard the Enterprise and in Benga's emotional arc this season. There are also featurettes allowing us to get behind the scenes on creating the scenery and the costumes for the Elysian Kingdom. As well as one focusing on Christina Chung's little dog, Runa, (laughs) who, who appeared in the episode. Um, the Ready Room ends with a sneak peek of episode 9 entitled All Those Who Wander. Well, there's which, a... Which looks like the horror episode. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, it does, it? Doesn't sure it? does. Yeah. I'm not a horror person. I am a Star Trek person, so I will watch it, but not really looking forward to a horror episode. Yeah. Okay. So, new... There's a new Star Trek book out. Gary. What? Yes, yes. In fact, I purchased this book. I bet you did. It, it is on its way. But written with inside access, comprehensive research, and a down-to-earth perspective, the new book, Phasers <laughs> on Stun, chronicles the entire history of Star Trek, revealing that revealing its enduring place in pop culture. Thanks to innovative pivots and radical change. The book is written by Ryan Britt, one of my favorite Star Trek analysts, best known for his articles for the website Den of Geek. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know you like Den of Geek a lot. I like this particular writer. Okay. Okay, Okay. let me put it like that. Okay. Okay. For over five decades, the heart of Star Trek's pro-science, anti-racist, and inclusive messaging has been its willingness to take big risks. Across 13 feature films and 12 TV series, including five shows currently airing or in production, the brilliance of Star Trek is in its endless ability to be rethought, rebooted, and remade. The book features over 100 exclusive interviews with actors and writers across all generations, including Walter Koenig, LeVar Burton, Dorothy Fontana, Britt Spiner, Ronald D. Moore, Jerry Ryan, and many more. Britt gets the inside story on all things Trek, like Spock's evolution from Red Devil to the personification of logical empathy, the near failure to launch the next generation in 1987, and how Trekkie outrage threatened to destroy the franchise more than once. The book also dives deep with creators like Michael Chabon, co-creator of Star Trek Picard, and Nicholas Meyer, director of The Wrath of Khan. These interviews extend to contemporary Star Trek, from Discovery to Picard to Lower Decks, and even 
strange new worlds. For fans who know every detail of each Enterprise bridge, to a reader who has never seen a single minute of any Star Trek, this book claims to be aimed to entertain, inform, and energize. Through humor, insight, archival research, and a unique access, this journey through the Star Trek universe isn't just about its past, but a definitive look at its future. Well, now for our last news item, uh, there will be listeners who will be glad to hear this. And the some who may not. Okay, for those who have enjoyed streaming season two of Star Trek Picard and would also like to have the physical media in hand, the latest season of Picard will soon be beaming in onto DVD, Blu-ray, and a limited edition Blu-ray steelbook. Season two will arrive on those formats on October 4th and will include a number of special features. Did you hear that, Adele? There's going to be some special features on them things. Um, In addition to all the episodes of season two, there will be featurettes taking deep dives into such aspects of the series as the creation of the USS Stargazer, Picard's Chateau, the design and the production of the Borg Queen, series props and behind-the-scenes exploration of John Delancey as well as a gag reel. Most of those I think we saw on the ready room throughout the season. Well, I don't think we saw the gag reel. No, I think that's the one that we did not see. Okay. So in closing, we'll be back next week with our review of the season one penultimate episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds entitled All Those Who Wonder. Mm. Before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link of Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. And until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Star Trek AOD. At our website, Star Trek AOD.net where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. You can also email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.